For many people, the Lenten season is the time to either get rid of something, to put something aside that maybe distracts or takes up some of your time. So I've noticed like some people are checking out on Facebook or they're going to give up golf for you know the 40 days of Lent or something like that. Other people uh, will add a new habit. They're going to read a book or they're going to take up a new practice. They're going to get a text message. They're going to you know, pray every day at noon, something like that. They're adding something on. The Lenten season is really a, a season of us preparing our hearts for the celebration of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf. So it seems really appropriate for us to talk this morning about the topic of self-assessment. There was a study recently by George Barna and Associates. Uh, they were one of the, the top research firms in the, in the country that looks at spirituality, religious life, and the way it intersects with culture in America. And they found that effective and periodic measurement of spirituality conducted personally or through a church is not common. And it's not likely to become common in the near future. So whether it's as a corporate body or whether it's individually, it doesn't happen. Not very often. They found that churches are, are pretty poor at figuring out how to measure this sort of stuff. Churches tend to look at attendance or how many people come to small group or how big the offering is. These kind of external things. And those don't necessarily tell you very much about internal transformation, about life change or people who are opening up their lives more and more to Jesus. So it, it's hard to measure but there's also, on a personal level, it's challenging as well. Americans have an almost insatiable curiosity about themselves and how they stack up against others. Yet in the spiritual realm, that same level of curiosity is much less apparent. So we do annual checkups with our doctor. Our kids take SOLs every year. Some of you are doing financial peace, and you've done a financial evaluation. But when was the last time you did a self-assessment of your spiritual development? How often do you intentionally, methodically dig in and try to evaluate how you're doing in your relationship with Christ. So this morning, we're going to dig into this idea of spiritual self-assessment. The concept is found several places in Scripture, but one of the clearest directives to put this into practice is 2 Corinthians chapter 13. So uh, let's look at this. This is from The Message, which is a modern translation on the spectrum from accurate to readable. It leans definitely in the readable direction. I think kind of captures this idea. It says, test yourselves to make sure you're solid in the faith. Don't drift along taking everything for granted. Give yourselves regular checkups. You need firsthand evidence, not mere hearsay, that Jesus Christ is in you. So test it out. If you fail the test, do something about it. Now, let's look at that same passage with the amplified version of the Bible. This, this is a version that kind of goes more towards accuracy. It's a little clunkier to read sometimes, but they try to unpack the meaning of some of the original words that are used that, you know, we sometimes translate very quickly or for readability, but we don't get all the meaning. So that same passage in the Amplified Version says, examine and test and evaluate your own selves to see whether you are holding to your faith and showing the proper fruits of it. Test and prove yourselves. Let's be honest, we're, we're usually more comfortable with the idea of evaluating other people, Right? I mean, it's so much easier. We can look at them, and we'll pick an area that we're pretty good in, and we'll compare ourselves to somebody that's particularly bad, and we feel awesome about that, you know? Like, I don't gossip about my wife. I gossip about other stuff, you know? And they gossip about their wife all the time. Whew, I feel so much better. But this is the idea of judging ourselves. And grammatically, this comes in the form of a command, not a suggestion, not like, hey, have you ever thought about this? It's do it. You need to evaluate yourself. Be on the lookout for self-deception. Dig in. Evaluate. Weigh the evidence. Don't 
Quit when you find just one thing that's out of calibration because there could be other things. So be methodical, be comprehensive and thorough. Think about the externals, which are the things that other people may see or notice, but also think about the internal things that maybe other people have no idea about. Now, it's possible to do this well. There are some areas where maybe you won't have as much certainty as you like, so you can solicit input from close friends or your spouse or kids. It's a great place to get added information about how you're doing in these areas. But by and large, the big questions can be answered one way or another. So I would encourage you to invite the Holy Spirit to kind of guide you through this process, to set aside some time and to uh, regularly plan on kind of evaluating how you're doing spiritually. But let's take it a step further. Now that we've talked about what a self-assessment is, how do you do one? And that process could be different for different people. There are lots of different ways. One method is John Wesley's 22 questions. Some of you, if you grew up Methodist, you may have heard these. So Wesley had a group of friends that he met with every week. It was called the Holy Club, not a very cool name these days, but uh, they were really serious about their relationship with Christ. So every day they committed that they would ask these questions of themselves, and then when they got together, they would share the answer. And there were questions like, am I self-conscious, self-pitying, or self-justifying? Did the Bible live in me today? Do I give it time to speak to me every day? And 19 other questions like that. So Wesley's questions, those are, those are great questions even today. A couple hundred years later, we could read those and apply them to our life. There are several online tools that I found this week that were published by churches or denominations that typically would be maybe a set of 20 or 30 or 40 questions. And you kind of rate yourself on a, you know, maybe a 1 to 5 scale or 1 to 10 scale. How am I doing? Am I showing growth in this area? And it just kind of gives you an opportunity to see wait a minute, let me think about how am I doing in these areas. If you're interested in that, if you'll email me this week, uh, I'll send you a link. Uh, There are four of them. There are probably others that you could find online. Just email me at alex at gatewaychurch.org. There are also some great Bible passages that lend themselves to self-evaluations. Colossians 3, we read some of that in the responsive reading earlier. That's a passage where Paul talks about, hey, take this kind of stuff off your, the, the way you used to live and put on this new way of living. And he lists a, a long list of things that characterized our old life before we met Jesus. And then he gives another list of things that ought to characterize us now that we walk with Jesus. So Colossians 3 would be another great place to look. How many of you have ever heard of Veggie Tales? Raise your hand. I know we just got rid of our set of VHS Veggie Tale things when we were cleaning out uh, recently. So Veggie Tales, some of you know, these are sarcastic limbless, talking fruit and vegetable characters featured in animated videos that retell Bible stories and parody mainstream pop culture. It's the most successful faith-based Christian children's franchise of all time. It was created by Phil Vischer. Phil was a creator. He launched the venture in the early 90s and by 2000 was running the largest animation studio between the East and the West Coast. He had revolutionized Christian family entertainment by selling 30 million VeggieTale videos and was named one of the top 10 people to watch in worldwide religion. But by 2003, after a heartbreaking court decision, he declared bankruptcy and had sell off all of the assets, including Bob the Tomato and Larry the Cucumber. So he wrote a book about this. It was a gut-wrenching time for him. In one interview, he shared that near the end, we were selling a gazillion VeggieTale videos, and I was getting 400 fan letters a day, but one day I was reading my Bible, and I came across the verse that lists the fruit of the Spirit. It occurred to me that none of those things were present in my life. 
It didn't say the fruit of the Spirit is impact, large numbers, and selling lots of videos. I realized something was not right. I think we all have to start with a good self-assessment. This is what I did when I was sitting in the wreckage of my world-changing ministry, reading the fruit of the Spirit and not finding it in my life. We should have peace. We should have joy. And that doesn't mean we should force ourselves to have it because we can't. It will come from us when we've let go of our life, when we've let go of our ministry, when we've let go of any aspiration for having an impact. When it's just us and God, then we find joy and peace. So for me, like Phil, looking at that passage, Galatians 5.22, about the fruit of the Spirit, that is a passage that I have found really helpful. I try to go back to it at least once a year, sometimes a little more often, and I've developed the habit of sort of like evaluating how am I doing in those areas. And in fact, there is a tool, there's a a one-page handout you can take home with you that you can pick up on your way out today that will help you guide yourself through that process if you're interested in it. Let's look at the passage again from Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Now, fruit is a, a, a word that I think was very specifically chosen by Paul in this passage. It's organic. We don't manufacture fruit. Uh, we don't make it or build it. it. It's the natural outcome of healthy growth, but it takes time. And not all fruit grows at the same rate. Some apples are large, some are small, even on the same tree. If if we call this good work, then it would feel like it was the result of effort or trying or straining or exerting. But fruit is a much more natural process. So you think about it. A peach doesn't really have to try very hard to be peach-like, does it? And no matter how hard a peach tries, it's not going to be an apple. So it's about good roots, healthy irrigation, lots of sunlight. And the seeds that you find in most fruits actually produce even more fruit, right? So this is the concept, the fruit of the Spirit. It's the the fruit versus fruits. It's not plural, it's singular. That means it's a collective unity. It's not that some of these are produced in some people and some in others. So like, I'm really good in patience, so that gets me off the hook for the others. No, these are all nine qualities are supposed to be visible in the lives of every one of us in ever-growing quantities as we walk with the Lord. It's also fruit of the Spirit. Not just fruit of our labor, it's fruit of the Spirit. So it means that we have to let God's Holy Spirit, as it indwells us, uh, change us and cultivate space and get rid of some weeds and, and do the prep work that allows the Spirit to flourish in us and produce this fruit. And when we have a healthy, growing relationship with Christ, then the Holy Spirit produces this fruit. And our spiritual maturity is reflected in the closeness with which our character reflects Christ. So we play a role in cultivating the fruit. We don't just sit around and wait for it to pop up. We control the exposure to light. We have a say in what kind of nourishment the fruit gets. It's our job to get rid of thorns and weeds. And it's up to us to give God the freedom to use all kinds of circumstances to grow us. So do we just insist on rainbows and sunshine, or do we let him send rain and storms and snow? So let's run through these, because I want you to have a a good idea of what we're talking about with these qualities. So love is the first one, and it makes sense, because God is love. Uh, 1 John 4, 8 says that God is love. So if we've been adopted into his family, love ought to be something that characterizes us. It ought to be overwhelmingly obvious in our lives. So we ought to cultivate it, give it away, pray for its increase. It's first, and it's foundational to all the other fruit. 
When we talk about love, we're not talking about a warm, fuzzy feeling. We just got through Valentine's Day, and if you go to the card store, you get the idea. It's like, ooh, I just, I get tingly when I, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about agape love, which is self-sacrificing love. This is love that gets nailed to a cross. It's not warm and fuzzy. It's painful if you're willing to live it out and sacrifice. It's not a feeling or an emotion, but an inner commitment that shows up in outward actions. Christ embodied this God-honoring love perfectly. And uh, Paul could be describing Jesus in 1 Corinthians 13. This is a passage that we know. We hear it at weddings sometimes. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. That same sacrificial love that prompted Jesus to lay down his life for us is the sort of love that we're supposed to model as we lay down our lives for other people. Jesus loved all kinds of people, not just the ones that looked like him. We're called to do the same thing, to worry about spiritual and physical needs of other people, even people that we haven't yet met but especially those we come in contact with, the ones in our sphere of influence. So we pray for them, we try to meet their needs, we develop relationships, we engage them spiritually, we serve them practically. And we ask ourselves questions like, am I more aware or thankful of God's great love for me? Am I more responsive to him than I was a year ago? Are there any tangible expressions of my love for others, especially people who are not like me? Uh, The second fruit is joy. It might be unexpected based on the kind of judgy, whiny character that a lot of people outside the church see among people who call themselves Christians. But joy is supposed to be a big part of our identity. There are a lot of synonyms for joy in Scripture, each with its own nuance. One is to shine. Joy means to shine or to leap. That's another one. When you think about how joy shows up in our life, it's funny, I was out in the uh, lobby this morning and one family came in and the adults seemed to be moving a little sleepy and the kids were just hopping and bouncing and, you know, like full of energy. And we need to be showing joy kind of in in a similar way, maybe not with physical activity, but there's energy and activity to it. It literally is holy optimism, inward peace and sufficiency, not just happiness or pleasure, but Something that is a rational perspective. It's a logical, it makes sense. It's based on the reality of God's work in the world. And it's our outlook, it's our worldview. And so, an inner rejoicing based on God's sovereign control over things. So, we ask ourselves questions like, in spite of difficult circumstances around me, do I experience joy? Or does it depend on what's going on around me, whether I feel that dependence on God. Peace is another fruit. Again, this is an internal kind of thing, something that isn't based on external circumstances. In fact, it's often in spite of turmoil that's going on around us. And in concept, it's a combination of hope and trust with elements of security, contentment, prosperity. In the Old Testament, the idea was soundness or health or well-being with God and man. In the New Testament, in Philippians 4.7, it's called peace that passes understanding. 
It's not about what's going on around us. It's about what's going on inside of us. So when the circumstances around me are uncertain and stressful, what is the condition of my soul? Am I willing to work through conflict and work towards peace in a God-honoring way? Do I take initiative when there's a relational rift, or do I play it safe? Patience is another fruit, sometimes translated long-suffering, not just waiting, but aggressively enduring in the face of opposition and resistance. It's patient or courageous endurance without quitting. So not seeking revenge or wishing difficulty on those who oppose us, and it's not about complaining. It's long-suffering, not because it has no choice, but as a result of a decision of our will. And we trust God for vengeance. We trust God for relief. Instead of being pushy or demanding, we trust his goodness and his wisdom and his faithfulness, and we give him time and room to work. We don't insist on him rescuing us in precisely the way we want him to do it. So we ask ourselves, even if I'm able to hide it from those around me, how often do I struggle with impatience? Am I becoming less demanding, more comfortable with not having things the way I'd like them to be? Another fruit is kindness, which means benevolence in action. Doing what is in the best interest of others, even when they don't treat us kindly, even when it may cost us. In the Old Testament, we see it in the way that God kept his covenant with his people. Even though they rebelled, even though he would have been fully justified in dishonoring his commitment to them. In the New Testament, we see it in Christ's mercy for us, dying for us, even though we rebelled against God. So for us, it could be compassion for someone who is hurting or in need. It could be things like us gathering food to give to the Little South Food Pantry so they can serve families who are struggling, literally, to find food to eat. So uh, questions to ask. Is God's blessing and mercy something I not only receive, but I pass on to others? Do I regularly go out of my way to add value or make life better for other people? Goodness is another fruit. It's being upright in soul and heart in life. It's having a character that honors God, moral excellence, virtuous, righteous. We want to try to reflect God's perfect, holy character, obviously in a less than perfect way, but in everyday human interactions and choices, even if somebody else is pursuing evil. One of the best demonstrations of this concept in Scripture is when Jesus chased the money changers out of the temple. So we think goodness is like, you know, just trying to be a a choir boy or something, but Jesus, in righteous anger, chased the money changers out of the court of the Gentiles because that was the part of the temple that God had reserved for people who were far from God. And and goodness means standing up for what is good and God-honoring. This is not at all being wimpy. It's not that at all. Sometimes reading the fruit of the Spirit just sounds like we're supposed to be kinder and gentler people, just, you know, try to be a nice person. That's not what these are about at all. These are very difficult, challenging gut-wrenching qualities to grow in our lives, and we stand up like Jesus stood up. So we uh, consider questions like, am I willing to make a stand and do the God-honoring thing, even if it costs me? Am I willing to acknowledge my mistakes in front of other people? Do I recognize my failures and my weaknesses? Uh, Another fruit is faithfulness, which means trustworthiness, reliability, fidelity, unshakable constancy, unwavering, in our relationship with God and others, doing what we say we will do, living out our promise and our commitment. We think about sometimes marriage being faithful is like, well, don't have an affair. Don't, you know, like don't cheat on your spouse. Well, 
sure, that's good. Don't do that, all right? But faithfulness is about a lot more than that. It's about pursuing our spouse. It's about putting their interests and concerns ahead of our own. It's about taking proactive responsibility, developing the relationship, building a life together. And the same is true spiritually. Are we aggressively investing our energy and our effort and our focus to strengthen our relationship with Christ? That's what faithfulness looks like. So when we look at our own lives, is my faith unwavering or does it run hot and cold? Are my decisions usually based more on circumstances or on my trust in Christ and my decision to obey him no matter what? Uh, Gentleness is uh, another quality here in the fruit of the Spirit, sometimes defined as humility or meekness, not just in the exterior demeanor, but starting on the inside in our relationship with God, being submissive to God's word and being obedient to the promptings of his Holy Spirit, and then being considerate of others when exercising our power of authority. There's absolutely no suggestion of weakness here. It's the idea of power under control, the skillful or right use of strength or power. It's the idea of finesse. Jesus is the prime example. He made his choice to die, not because he was powerless, because in reality he was omnipotent, but he chose willingly to put aside that power. And he laid down his life and died in our place. So gentleness doesn't throw power around or push or bully or manipulate. It doesn't rely on force, manipulation, threat, strength, or power. But it relies on reason and persuasion and finesse and skill. If wisdom is the right use of knowledge, then gentleness is the right use of power and strength. And then finally, self-control, which means self-discipline. Talking about emotions, actions, desires, thoughts, attitudes, heart. This is God honoring self-imposed boundaries. So we, in response to God, put boundaries on what we do. It's not being overwhelmed or controlled by feelings or temptation or pressure or passion. It's a moral alertness and a conscious control, awareness of what is good and right, and a willingness to execute on that. It's self-government, exercising our own will based on what is pleasing to God. So it's the idea of a world-class athlete exercising self-mastery over their body. They force their body to comply with their will even though their muscles are rebelling. They choose to forego some foods, some habits, some fun simply because they know it's not in the best interest of their body. And we try to do the same thing spiritually where we exercise self-control We ask ourselves questions like, in what areas of life has my self-discipline grown stronger? And where has it grown weaker? Where do I find myself struggling? Where in my life do I need to exercise greater self-control? So these are all components of this. I want to challenge you to take home one of these. It's just a one-page self-evaluation. Basically, we got nine qualities, a couple of questions kind of to explain this process, and then on a one-to-nine scale, you can... Take some time, pray about it, think about it, and try to figure out where do I fit. And I'd use the example of patience uh, on this one. So uh, last summer, I would say I was a seven and a half. And right now, I'm about a six and a half. This is a lot like growing grass or growing a garden. You may have had a great tomato crop last year, but maybe they're not growing this year. And so you have to go and look at it and figure out what's going on. So for me, I'm asking myself, what has changed over the last, you know, eight or nine months? Are there internal things? Are there external things? And and I can identify some of those. And then what are the workarounds? What do I need to change in response to that if I really want to let patience flourish in me? Who are the people I need to talk to? What do I need to pray about, 
who are the accountability partners I need on that. So we look at that, pray about it, and, and I think this could be a very useful thing, and I would encourage you to take a copy home. Uh, they're on the table out there. So we've talked about, in general, what is self-assessment? We've talked about what it might look like, how you might do it. And then last but not least, I want us to, to push even further about a very specific kind of self-examination. We're going to have communion this morning, the Lord's Supper. We're going to celebrate the Eucharist. And Paul says, anytime you come to the table, anytime you're going to eat bread in remembrance of Christ, anytime you're going to drink the cup and remember the price that was paid for us, you need to examine yourself. Don't do it casually. Don't do it carelessly. You need to deliberately spend some time figuring out what is going on in your relationship with Christ. So from 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 29, Paul says, I received from the Lord himself that instruction, which I passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this represents my body, which is offered as a sacrifice for you. Do this in affectionate remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup, is the new covenant, ratified and established in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in affectionate remembrance of me. And then Paul goes on, he says, for every time you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you are symbolically proclaiming the fact of the Lord's death until he comes again. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in a way that is unworthy of him, in a way that's unworthy of Christ, will be guilty of profaning and sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. But a person must prayerfully examine himself and his relationship to Christ. But a person must prayerfully examine himself and his relationship to Christ. And only when he has done so should he eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without solemn reverence and a heartfelt gratitude for the sacrifice of Christ eats and drinks a judgment on himself. There may be some of you here who have not yet reached a point in your life where you've made a commitment to follow Jesus and you've said, you know, like, I am all in, Lord. You're, you're checking it out. You're thinking about it. That's a great place to be in. For you, the encouragement today is to sit and watch and think about what Jesus did on your behalf and the change that he could bring to your life. But communion is not for you. It'd be like you going to a wedding ceremony and you reciting vows to somebody you don't intend to marry. That, that would be a meaningless ceremony for you. So we just encourage you to sit and just kind of think and pray. Uh, another reason you might not want to take communion is if there's an area in your life where you know God has said, hey, this needs to get fixed. This needs to get changed. And right now you're saying, uh, nope, that's rebellion. And when you in rebellion, go and say, oh yeah, Jesus, I'm all in. I appreciate your body and blood. That's what profaning the bread and the cup is all about. You're a hypocrite. We're all hypocrites, but when you, in rebellion, go to God and kind of go through the motions of like, yeah, I'm all in, you're lying. So you, again, maybe just need to sit out and think and pray about how do you get back on the right track with God? So we're going to do communion a little differently this morning. Oftentimes we pass it down the rows and then we eat and drink together. Some of you grew up in churches where you go up to the front and the priest or the pastor serves the Eucharist to you. When I was a kid, I enjoyed going to my grandmother's Methodist church. There was a, an altar and then a rail and a kneeler around it and you'd go up row by row and the pastor would serve like, you know, 10 people at a time. 
This morning, we're going to do it a little differently. We really want to emphasize this need to examine yourself. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. They're going to give us some quiet background music. I'm going to pray and then give you time to pray. And then we have 10 communion stations. So there are two in each corner of the room and two up here. And I want you to spend as much time as you need praying, preparing, evaluating, assessing, getting things right with God. And then when you're ready, we would invite you to come to any of these stations. You can come by yourself. You may want to come with your spouse. You may want to come as a family or uh, some of the people from your small group. You come and get the bread and the cup and then maybe step away so other people can get to the table. There's some open space around here. It would be awesome to see groups of two or three or five people praying and eating communion together, sharing that mercy meal as brothers and sisters. So we want to just give you some unhurried time this morning to do a self-assessment and to make sure that you're on track with Christ before you take communion. And then we'll sing some and we'll head home. So would you bow your heads? I'm going to pray. God, we're so grateful that you saw the mess we created, and rather than disconnecting and distancing yourself from us, you chose to send your son to rescue us. We bless you for your mercy and your compassion and your grace. Precious Jesus, words cannot capture the debt we owe you. Thank you for laying down your life willingly and uh, canceling the debt that we owed for our rebellion and sin to God. Thank you for redeeming us and giving our lives value for providing us with a fresh start, reconciling us to God. Spirit of the living God, we, we thank you for your indwelling presence and your willingness to gently, patiently shine light on the dark areas of our soul, the areas where we need to change. We recognize your sovereign work at, at producing fruit in our lives. We also recognize our need to cooperate with you, to yield to what you want to do. So we just give you the space this morning and the invitation, Holy Spirit, to poke and prod, to convict, to correct. We give you this time and we give you glory.